HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. My name is Sutter Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Guys, how, hey. did, how many shots did you do for St. Patrick's Day? Because I got one. That <laughs> <laughs> was a vaccine shot. That was all I did. I didn't even have a Guinness this year. Oh, man. That's disappointing. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. I, I, I got my first vaccination. So, like, that's it's. I had a very responsible 40th St. Patrick's Day in my life. Wow. <laughs> uh, so you've got one shot. Greg, you got two. I got two shots. I'm I'm uh I'm I'm back. <laughs> it feels weird. Like it's this I feel like I have this kind of superpower now. Also, the second shot of Moderna sucks, and I would do that every single day if I had to to get this to get everybody fully vaccinated and get back to normal. Like it's not fun, but it is absolutely worth it. Second Um, shot. Second shot you're saying is worse than the first. Second shot is worse than the first. The first one, I sort of had this sense of, you know how like back in, back in the olden days when we were like, Oh, I feel a cold coming on. I better, you know, drink a bunch of orange juice while I still go to work. Uh, That was sort of the feeling that I had after the first shot. The second one was like, Nope, I've definitely got something. Um, but I came out the other side, and now I'm actually uh, on one of my first trips in a year. I went uh, back to my hometown to DC, uh, saw my family, uh, saw hopefully, some hopefully really soon good to be friends. The, hopefully, soon to be the state of DC. Hopefully, oh my God, yeah. I, I, it's don't don't even get me started on that. We can do an entire episode about that. But yes, I I have long said that like DC statehood is my favorite lost cause of American politics, but it looks like it could really be a a thing. Fingers crossed. I mean, there's no real reason not to. It's crazy that the people that live here don't have representation in Congress, but right. Which meets in, which meets in their city, which meets in Washington, (laughs) DC. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I did. I did read something interesting because up until recently, the issue of DC statehood wasn't particularly popular 
with other people in the United States. And I think I, I read this piece that I sort of agree on that when folks generally think of D.C., they think of all the crap that the rest of America sends here and not the people that live here. So they, you know, they don't picture the folks that live in the, you know, the row houses around where I am now in Brookland. You know, they think of Ron Johnson and they're like, I don't want that guy voting. So all of which is to say, hopefully perceptions are changing and hopefully uh, at some point I will be able to visit the uh, state of Douglas Commonwealth and not the district of Columbia. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Uh, well, you two got your shots. Uh, uh, I'm certain that means you've zipped over and picked up a Krispy Kreme donut or two. <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, uh, you're not. Tell, you me, tell me about this, Souther. Yeah, you guys hear about this? When you get, I, I don't know if it's when you get your full course or at least the first one, but Krispy Kreme is willing to give a free donut to everyone who gets vaccinated for every remaining day of the year. So you got, if you're fully vaccinated, you can go to Krispy Kreme. You've got 230-something donuts coming your way, pal. What? <laughs> That's going to help you keep the the COVID nineteen off, right? The, the weight gain that everybody t- the weight gain that everybody oh, took on during COVID uh, stacked up against the the irresistible nature of the Krispy Kreme donut. So, it, uh, so this isn't just like you know when someone steals a base in in the World Series, you get like free tacos for a day between three p.m. and five p.m. It's every day for the rest of the year. You get a free Krispy Kreme donut with your vaccine yeah. card. Yeah, don't lose that card, man. Laminate that shit. <laughs> yeah, put it on a lanyard, wear it around your neck. It's this, you know, that's a really good. full full memento and just tattoo it on my body. Yeah, I mean, think about it. You're you're like on a road trip right now. I mean, that's. That's just economics, dude. You've got <laughs> you've got free breakfast every day while you're on the road, and you know you know where Krispy Kremes are. Like when you're out on the road, they're right by the gas station usually. Right. So mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, so yeah, like right. Set. I mean, I assume that means, frankly, that you could stop at every Krispy Kreme in a day uh, that you can get to. I, I, how could they possibly? They're not keeping the record, but you show the card, you get a donut. Um, anyway, that's us trying to game a system. Uh, I, I do they're just, love. They're just do, trying to do something nice, Souther. I, I do love that they are out there trying to do something, and they always do. You know, Krispy Kreme's been uh, it's a fan favorite in the South where I'm from, um, and you know they've always done things like if you get an A on your report card, you can go get a. a it's just the plain, the standard Krispy Kreme donut. You can go get one, or they, 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 they. You know, if you if your if your baseball team wins or something, you can go get a, a free donut. Like they're they're always doing that kind of stuff. What I think is interesting is that the there's a. You guys haven't seen it, obviously, but there's a huge uproar on the internet uh, from the sort of anti-vax crew that they're they're, yeah. ups, they're upset that they can't get a free donut because they refuse <laughs> to, they refuse to go get vaccinated. So, in response, in response, Krispy Kreme offered um, two days. I think it's uh, maybe it's this Sunday and Monday. Two days uh, where you can go in and, and still get a free donut and uh, and even a cup of coffee, free donut and a coffee. Uh, if you're an anti-vaxxer. Oh, God. Why are, why, are we, why are we catering to these people? Like, I had, first of all, I had the best conversation with the, uh, the woman who has given me my second shot. She was just, you know, one of these old school, tough as nails, hilarious New Yorkers. And um, we were talking about how ridiculous it is that people are afraid that the government is going to put a tracking device in the vaccine. I got news for you, everybody. We all have tracking devices on us. You're probably listening to this podcast on it right now. And yeah, guess exactly. what? You paid for it. <laughs> yep, you set yep. up a payment plan for your own tracking device. Like they don't need to put inject into our bodies. We have them on us at all times. Get get the shot. Get the shot. <laughs> Enjoy your donuts. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well put. Oh, uh, man. 
Uh, speaking of port- portable things, I got a, a little thing in the mail uh, a few weeks back. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like RTDs, ready to drink cocktails out there. And this one's actually a little bit different. This is, I got a cocktail in a box. Um, and it has, it's it's a cachaça old fashioned. It's got a little bottle of Novo Fogo cachaça, a little tiny, tinier bottle of uh, Scrappy's grapefruit bitters, and a little packet of agave nectar. And you've got the whole cocktail. It's got a little wooden stir stick as well, a little like potty stick. You just uh, throw that in a glass. With an ice cube, it's you know it's nine a.m. here in California, so I figured why not start with a uh, no fogo cachaça <laughs> old fashioned because of our Gosh. guest today. That's right. <laughs> nice, nice segue. Yeah, and, and you can hear I, I get it on a big cube, so I feel like I'm actually at a, a real cocktail bar here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got a couple of these as well. Um, Greg, did you get a couple? I did. Uh, I didn't have the um, patience to let it last until this show, though. I tried. Uh, I really tried. It, it survived for like two or three days in my apartment before I, I couldn't resist diving in. So now I'm, I'm like I'm like the kid in that experiment that like if you wait 15 minutes to eat this marshmallow, you get a second marshmallow. I I failed. <laughs> I failed that test. So I'll just have to sit here and listen to you both drink it. Um <laughs> Just a but, random side note on that particular experiment, which is a known one that uh, shows that uh, children have, uh, a co- you know, cognitive ability to understand time and reward. Um, uh, uh, you know, they did that test now with cuttlefish, and cuttlefish pass it. So cuttlefish are as smart as toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> cuttlefish understand reward and time. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Greg, who's in the virtual studio with us today? <laughs> Joining us in the virtual studio today, we have uh, Dragos. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, Ajinte, did I do that right? You know, close enough. Perfect. <laughs> Dragos Ajinte from Nova Fogo Cachaca. How are you doing today, man? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Cachaca is from Brazil. Uh, are you joining us from Brazil today? No, I live in Seattle. I was actually born in Europe. And I live in Seattle. I just kind of live on work on different continents and uh, try to make the best of it. <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, I'm sure that that means that your work uh, flow has been pretty stilted over the past year with the inability to do any traveling, right? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I've been using Zoom probably for five years. And prior to COVID, it's been very difficult to get people to join me at the other end uh, because, you know, computers don't have cameras and the IT department will, will prevent you from using such complicated software. But now everything has become uh, video calls and it suits us fine. It, I lack the, the contact with human beings. I like being in the company of the most hospital people on the planet. That stuff is very difficult to deal with and it's definitely has affected both my body and my psyche. But I do have plenty of interaction with people from all over the world on a daily basis. So I get my fill. I like the fact that, that you can... That they can see your hangover, but they can't smell your hangover. You know, like it's, it's Zoom's really, uh, you know, been helpful for, for that at least. Listen, I had never done a Zoom ever uh, before March of last year. And I count now that I've done 42 of them over the past year uh, for um, uh, virtual classes slash tastings that I've, I've done for, 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 generating revenue for myself to keep myself afloat. And I'll tell you this in no uncertain terms without any, uh, holdback. I fucking hate it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, not because it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work. It works. Can I see you? Can I hear you? Can we talk? Can we interact? Yes. What doesn't work, though, is the, the part of what I do in a bar when I'm tasting things with people or making things with people, it just doesn't translate. Uh, and we've had to just kind of square peg, round hole this situation for the past year. And it's been, frankly, uh, it, it, it helped keep me afloat. It made me some money. I won't deny that. But, man, I hated every virtual second of it. <laughs> wow. Well, so I, then, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Zoom's, Zoom's, Zoom's profits are 4,000% t- higher than they were last year. Yeah. Just a random fact that I happened but, to read earlier Well, you know, today. as much as you hate Zen- Zencast or Zoom, Zencaster's great, right? Zencaster's <laughs> smoking it, man. This is great. Uh, the fact that we are able to have guests in from all over the world so much more easily. And frankly, Damon, if it weren't for Zencaster, we wouldn't be able to have you on. So, you know, uh, really happy that... that you know, if there's a silver lining to the entirety of, of COVID for me, it's a Zencaster. Well, I'm uh, a silver anyway. lining guy, you know? Yeah, you are. And you are the silver lining in this. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what I'm here for, guys. Um, speaking of silver linings, this, this old-fashioned is really doing the trick this morning. <laughs> so thanks for sending these along. When was David, the- I, have a, I have a story about that, actually, because yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned you're having the one of the grapefruit um, bitters and the, uh, and the agave syrup. We were uh, selling these on cruise ships for a while, and we were doing cocktail classes on cruise ships. And I remember being at sea, setting up for a cocktail class one time on a big ship in the Pacific. And this couple walked by and they said, hey, are you guys the ones with the, 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 the kids in the rooms? And we said, yes, sir, certainly we are. And the woman said, well, I have one of those for breakfast, just like you, Dana. <laughs> and, and we just kind of had this stunned face uh, reaction on for breakfast and she said yeah it's a grapefruit on it so you know it, you, you can find the silver lining in, yeah. in, in each, each way that you want that's amazing yeah i mean like she she wasn't wrong yeah. <laughs> um so what I mean, so this you you started making these for cruise ships and like i'm assuming different events and types of things like that i mean I, what I love about this is that it's a cocktail in a box for the listeners out there. Um, we can post pictures of it on the our Instagram account when we post about the show. Um, the cool thing is it's a sm- uh, small 50 ml bottle, airplane bottle, a lot of times what we call it. And it has a little vial of bitters and a little packet of agave and a little stir stick. So there's so many like ready to drink cocktails out there these days. But like I, I like to work for my drinks a little bit more than just popping it. I can. Don't get me wrong. I've, I, there's some really great ones out there. Um, but this one's like, this one's really fun, especially for me being a bartender who hasn't been able to bartend for a very long time. It's like, I, I actually feel like I'm getting something done. Well, plus, uh, unlike an RGD, which you just crack open and drink, this one gives you some customization ability, right? That's you true. Can put in, you can put in less of the sweetener, more of the bitters, et cetera. You can, you know, pull a couple of levers and make it, make it more customized to your, to your taste. Uh, silver linings. Yeah, I've got the silver one right here in front of me. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, cachaça in general. Um, uh, Dragos, you know, obviously the three of us are pretty familiar with it, but maybe our listener would, would like a little bit of tuning in. What, what is cachaça besides being the national spirit of Brazil? Well, you know, that actually is where it starts. And it's important because the Brazilian government sees cachaça as a cultural ambassador to the world of the country, just like soccer or fashion or, or car racing. And it puts a lot of emphasis on making this um, uh, an ambassador to the world. And the reason why is because it's been 
made for 500 years. So it has a gigantic amount of heritage, uh, a very broad playing field and a lot of tradition. And it has become a national spirit because it became, it's just about as old as Brazil itself, you see. So it basically uh, is a spirit made from sugarcane in Brazil. And that's it. That kind of defines it. There are very few technical requirements, such as having to be bottled between 38% alcohol and 48% alcohol. But that's it. You can't add anything other than sugarcane. It has to be made in Brazil, and it is a distilled spirit. So its method of fabrication follows uh, the method of making any spirit in the world, which is that you have some kind of plant that grows out of the earth, and you try to squeeze the juice out of that, the sugar out of it, and then ferment that sugar into some kind of wine or beer, and then you distill that into something that's high proof. It just so happens that extracting sugar from sugarcane is pretty easy. So the process of making this stuff is fairly simple. Uh, it could be made without a lot of sophisticated equipment. It could be made in very rural environments. And as a result, it has permeated the entirety of Brazil and all aspects of, of its life. Um, as a 500-year-old spirit category, it has adapted over the years, over the centuries. It has a lot of diversity from north to south and east to west, from the coast to, to the um, savanna and, and so on. And... Uh, you see those kinds of differences manifested in the thousands and thousands of brands that exist in the market, many of which are not legally sold. They're sold just at the distillery because they choose not to pay taxes that would make the product otherwise unaffordable by neighbors. I often choose to not pay taxes. Well, it's a real problem, Sother. You know, in, in our state of Paraná, for domestic sales in Brazil, we pay about 60% tax on revenue. Wow. Whereas wow. it's no tax for exports, right? So there is a clear priority being given there to exporting. And we're investing less in the Brazil market because of that. But we're also lobbying to lower the taxes. And we've been successful a couple of times, but then the taxes are put back on. It makes it really hard to grow the brand inside of Brazil. At the same time, the opportunity really is outside of Brazil because it is a 500-year-old category in Brazil, but it's a 12, 15-year-old category outside of Brazil. Yeah, I agree with that. So basically what you're saying, though, is the tax is so high that it's, it's, uh, it's a hurdle to sell it in country. But it's the national spirit of Brazil. Does this mean that more that Brazilians are less and less drinking it if, if there's such an expense? No, because you still buy it. I mean, if you're in the rural uh, parts of Brazil, you know, you go into a town like ours, Mojetas, which has somewhere between twelve and 15,000 people you'll find lots of distilleries making it. They're just not legal. And to be legal, you have to do two right. things. Number one is you have to pay taxes to the IRS, the Receita Federal, and you have to have um, a license from the Ministry of Agriculture in order to be able to produce a, a, a drink product, right? Mm-hmm. And that illegality is one or two or both, basically. But most of them get the license to produce, but they don't pay the taxes because taxes are so high, they would have to double the price. And it's okay to sell locally. It's enough of a living to sell just to your community, your neighbors. And those types of alambiques exist everywhere, everywhere. There are tens and tens of thousands of them all over Brazil. Now that word and you so, just said, that, that word you just said sounded familiar to me. You said alambique. Is that, is that related to yeah. the alambic, the still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually um, the word for distillery in Portuguese is alambique. Mm-hmm. And it so, refers to the type of pot still. So these guys or, or, or folks are down there doing all the hard work of, of getting the cane, getting the juice out, creating this spirit, and then they're just opting to sell it locally 
uh, kind of out of, uh, in their backyard, basically, so that they can make right. a living because they would be punished effectively to, to try and sell it legally by the taxes. Yeah, and my guess is, just kind of from studying this over the years, that there are probably about 40,000, 50,000 producers in Brazil wow. of cachaça. But only about 2,000, I think, are legally sold in stores and through this distribution. Well, so we're talking maybe exported. Think we're about talking this place, about- we, were, we were just in Oaxaca about a year ago, and mm-hmm. we were drinking straight from the still everywhere we went, you know? This is exactly the vision that was in my mind, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's why you, that's why it's so iconic to see, like, the reused water bottles full of what looks like water, but it surely isn't, um, you know, and like, that's kind of the water, way I've always it's, thought it's about water, it. It's, it's water with consequences. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I've always kind of thought about it, Kishasi, because it is, it is like the people's drink in a, a very, very deep sense of the word, because it, it is like hyper localized a lot of times, you know, it seems that they're always, grabbing you know a bottle from their local producers and it's not like i feel like like a you know big company like leblon they're like you know their focus was kind of becoming like the big brand that's at all the football uh games and like out there in the world too i mean almost like essentially like grabbing that bigger market share almost like you know like your budweiser of sorts you know like it's always like kind of like partnered outward you know david i have a story that punctuates what you just said when we um started working with the team in brazil we um i was just amazed by the knowledge that they had about the spirit category and our master stiller ajinor makari jr is a professor at the university taught cachaça production for a couple of decades from sugarcane agriculture all the way to barrel aging and it's probably the only person to have a PhD in Kinshasa on this planet. And he's an agrochemist, so he's a very uh, studied man. But he, one of the first things he said to me was, if you really want to learn about Kinshasa, you don't come to me in my lab. You go to see Marcel. Right. And I said, who is Marcel? He said, I take you to Marcel. So one day, soon after I arrived in town, he took me to see Marcel, who was this man who had an alambique on the sidewalk, basically. He had a little room that was distillery and retail store and the sugarcane bagasse or the, the spent sugarcane after pressing was literally sitting on the sidewalk and he was doing everything in one location and he had the fermentation tank there and then he had a tiny little still and then from the still was a pipe that was going through a wall and I had to go see what was on the other side of the wall and that on the other side of the wall was where the bucket was collecting this the distillate Awesome. And he was right next to the toilet, of course. <laughs> and, and then next door was where he was selling these bottles for 10 reais, which was just like $3 at a time. But all of the bottles that he was using were reused. Like they'd probably be used a thousand times. They were so worn out. And, it was, and never washed. It was hilarious. <laughs> but but Ajinor said, Marcel, this is, if you truly want to understand the spirit of Kashasa, you meet people like him. He's important. He's been doing this in his method, learned from his parents for a, a very, very long time. Unfortunately, modern times caught up with Marcel, and this is kind of what's happening now, is that uh, he became a little too popular. There were too many people going to write newspaper stories about him or put him in books and so on. And he was he had an illegal operation. So at some point, the, uh, the taxpayer basically got a wind of, of this and said, we make Marcel into an example and started to chase him around. Then he'd go to the hills when the taxman would come and then come back until the day when his daughter got sick while he was away running from the tax man and he, um, he decided this is not worth it. So he shut down the business and 
that business no longer exists. So there is a conflict there between history and modern times. And unfortunately, it does come to a fiscal decision of whether or not you want to continue. So that's heartbreaking. And it seems like there should be some tax reform, uh, you know, uh, put into place so that it, it's less, uh, less cost prohibitive to sell locally. It seems like a, a tough hurdle to overcome. Let's take a break uh, and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come right back and keep talking with Dragos uh, about uh, the national spirit of Brazil, Cachaça. I want to talk about uh, its uh, relationship to rum uh, when we come back. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We are back. You are listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today, we are joined by Dragos Ajinte from Nova Fogo Cachaca. And uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the history of this spirit and, uh, you know, how uh, a very traditional way of making it is kind of running uh, and bumping up against modern times, not always with the best results. But uh, I, I really want to talk about um, this relationship to rum, how this spirit is is in a lot of ways predates what we think of as, as rum and how it's a close cousin, but also kind of different to this much more well-known uh, part of the spirits world. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and Greg, I think of Cachaca and rum agricole as primary cousins and rum as their distant cousin, because in, in particular, Cachaca and rum agricole are made from freshly pressed sugarcane juice, which makes them raw or more vegetal, more reflective of their terroir, whereas rum most of the time comes from cooked juice, molasses, basically, right? And that's, that's a primary difference. Uh, geographic uh, origin also is important, too. Obviously, cachaça can only be made in Brazil. Rum agricole is from the Caribbean, but rum can be made all over the world. Rum has fewer rules as well. So you see, um, you see the origin reflect itself in the taste, in particular, Rum agricole being created in the maritime environment has a brinier taste, and cachaça being created in a more tropical environment has a fruitier taste. For us, we at Nova Fogo, we happen to be kind of in the middle of all that. We're on the coast, but we're also in the rainforest with a lot of fruit orchards around us. So we're somewhere between the traditional cachaça and the and the um, savory rum agricole. Uh, cachaça is also 
distilled and bottled at lower proofs, whereas Romberger Coal is distilled and bottled at higher proofs. That's just custom, you know, heritage. And rum, of course, again, is, is all over the place. So there are many similarities. There are also many differences. Um, and I think what's interesting to know is that cachaça has been around for about 100 years longer than rum. It's as, as a 500-year-old category, it precedes rum by about 100. And the story is that basically the Portuguese brought sugarcane they had discovered in the West Indies to um, South America. And then they brought um, slaves from Western Africa to South America to work the plantations. And those dark beginnings set in motion a heritage of tears and, and tragedy, but also of, of positive discovery and innovation and eventually some level of joy too, but now without conflict. So as the Portuguese were the colonists on the coast of Brazil in the 1500s, the Dutch arrived there too. And late in the 1500s, around the turn of the century, naturally the two of them started a war with each other. The Dutch uh, lost to the Portuguese and had to leave. So they started to move up northward into Suriname and Guyana, and eventually the Caribbean. And they arrived in Barbados. But the Dutch were, in fact, making cachaça in Brazil because everybody was making cachaça in Brazil at that point. They were growing sugarcane. They found out about sugarcane. They were distilling it. And they were making this thing. And they started doing the same thing in the Caribbean where they discovered that perhaps there is also an opportunity to make a spirit from cooked sugarcane, which gave certain economic benefits. And so at this point in time, Barbados was an English colony. And these Dutch people were making some distilled spirit from sugarcane from Brazil, which the Portuguese had ta taught them to do. So this is a very interesting situation because at this point in time, Great Britain did not have a spirit of itself. Uh, gin arrived later. It did not have a wine industry. It just made ale. And so Barbadian rum and eventually Caribbean rum became a thing for England. The British <coughs> Navy started to take barrels of rum to to Britain, it became the national spirit. And as a result, a very gigantic amount of rum was produced in the first three decades or so of the 17th century, in the early 1600s. And the British Navy became the rum ambassador to the world over the course of centuries. This is very interesting because this is why everybody knows about rum all over the world. And now you compare that to the story of cachaça, which stayed in Brazil because the Portuguese did not need to take it back to the old continent. They already had their spirits. Uh, they already had wine and they left it in Brazil. Brazil, of course, grew in time, became a gigantic country and the, the category grew within Brazil. But it has not gotten outside of its borders until the last two decades, which is why we're trying to be the British Navy right now and make cachaça something that's known to the, to the world. We're just starting a few hundred years late. Well, that's interesting because I, I always, uh, cachaça was one of those spirits to me that I feel like every, every summer for like four or five years there, people would be like, this is going to be the summer where cachaça really takes off. Like it's going to yeah. be the next mezcal. <laughs> like this is good. This is the summer of cachaça. And I, I do feel like, I don't know that we ever had like the summer of cachaça, like the moment when it really caught fire, but I do feel like it's arrived. Like people know it. I haven't had someone ask what Kachaka was in a really long time, so that's a good sign. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I, I'm curious what it was like to work on this spirit that is kind of funky and grassy and fruity and like rum, but not what people who are used to drinking Captain Morgan are expecting from rum. What was it like 
to work on this and work in this industry and try and grow this field um, and educate people about what cachaça was and where it came from and why it's so delicious. Well, it was definitely hard and still is, but less so. I think you're right. It's, it hasn't arrived. There's no single event that's going to make it arrive. It's just arriving in small bits, you know, and it will take some time. Think about how long it took for tequila to become a thing in the United States. It wasn't overnight. Uh, but yeah, when we started this company, um, I saw a lot of opportunity to create, to bring something that was so prevalent in a big country, the size and, and the population size nearly of the United States and bring it here and give it a new identity, uh, not a new identity, but a new presentation to that identity and make it relevant here. And I thought we should be able to do that. I had done that before as an entrepreneur. Uh, but very clearly, it became obvious to me that I can't sell Novo Fogo Cachaça before I can explain to people what Cachaça is and why they need it. And literally, we started here in Washington State when the state was still controlled and we had we were lucky to get distribution in 200 stores right away because we were a local company. And I'd go to the stores, the controls, uh, the state stores, to talk to them about our bottles that were on their shelves. And I introduce myself and I say, hi, my name is Dragos. I am with Novo Fogo Cachaça. And the invariable response to all of that was, man, I don't understand a word you said, because all those <laughs> words were for it. Like, wh what are you saying? You know, do I, I, we don't have that product. And I'm like, you have it. It's right there on the shelf. No, we don't have it. Okay. It's that curvy bottle. Remember the curvy bottle? You, now they remember the bottle. <laughs> so it was from zero. We had to start. Right. And, um, and then we basically, the, the strategy that we had was that I, I do love cachaça and I, I travel, uh, in many parts of Brazil that I learned about the cachaça tradition, history and heritage and the methods and how people enjoy it and how it kind of meshes within the fabric of Brazilian identity. And I was very happy to share my knowledge with uh, bartenders of America. So I started doing these cachaça classes where I basically bring a variety of different bottles, including Marcel's bottles to these classes and show to my audience, the diversity and uh, it was fascinating because at that point in time, most bartenders in the U.S. had tasted maybe two cachaças and they were both industrial. They had no idea that there even was aged cachaça. So it was little by little by little. And we weren't the only ones doing this, but we put in a lot of work. And I think we're starting to see that the craft bartending world, world, like you said, has caught up to it. And now we're trying to make it a thing for mass retailers and see if we can create more engaging, more approachable opportunities for um, people who don't go to craft bars to buy this in a grocery store and enjoy it. And Damon, that's why we have that little cocktail kit that is um, in your hand right now, because that is a more approachable way to experience Christmas. And that's why we actually do have RTDs, sparkling caipirinhas. We've yeah, love those. In the, we've carbonated in the, them, put them in a can. Hot know? day by the pool, that thing rocks. Uh, definitely had a few of them. Um, so you're, you're out there being an evangelist for this uh, category as a whole and certainly your brand. Uh, and you uh, are stationed there in Seattle, but obviously you're making down in Brazil, but you're in the middle of the rainforest. Talk about just sheerly the location, how long it takes to get there, et cetera. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, you may have heard stories about that. From uh, my house. I've heard a few, but let's share them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my total trip is 30 hours door to door or more. That's the minimum. It could be 36 hours. It's taken me as long as 42 hours. Um, so it is exhausting. And, um, you know, when you get there, you're tired for a week. 
But it is also an inspiring place because we are in coastal mountains. It's called the area is called Serra do Mar, Mountains of the Sea, overlooking the Atlantic coast. And the entire area is blanketed by Floresta Atlantica, the Atlantic rainforest. It is a magical place of mountain, forest, and sea. And as a result, the air is very clean. The, the trees create that kind of purity in the air. And you can smell everything. It's really a true story of spirits terroir because you're just standing there and you smell the sea salt and you smell the banana blossoms and you smell the lime and the passion fruit and the grassiness of the rainforest, kind of that funk. And all of that ends up in our sugarcane. So the sugarcane is this very unique gift that this land gives us that is both savory and tropical at the same time, sweet and salty. Literally, I can taste sea salt in our cane. And as a result, we say, well, it's, a, it's really the starting place for everything that we do. So let's not change it. Let's make sure that our process is as simple and as pure as possible. So we're employing these, this traditional method of very um, uncomplex uh, steps to ensure that by the time we put liquid in the bottle, it smells and tastes like, like that place that it comes from, right? And... Uh, it defines us. It, it's also why it became basically the area and the people of the area became the um, foundation for our brand story. When we arrived there for the first time, we were just absolutely blown away. We were in love. We were inspired that your headache lifts, your chest opens, your stress level goes down. You say, I want to be part of this, right? And then you also say, if, when I leave here, I want to take a piece of this with me and I want to tell everyone about it. So Kashasa became that platform for us to speak about a different world and a different life and very quickly we learned although we had in our minds that you know we're going to do organic agriculture we're going to be sustainable and tell the story of the simple life by the time we arrived there we realized we don't have to do any of those things because they're already being done this is just life in this community that has coined this term called la vida my simplest the simple life and we just had to fit in <laughs> let them continue to do what they were doing and then bring that story back to the united states with us but it became a very important um, uh, dynamic that said, if you want to continue to have this exceptional product that is the derivative of this exceptional place, and if you want to have people who work in this very difficult um, agricultural context, you know, agriculture in the rainforest is very tough, then you have to take care of them all. And uh, we're obsessed with balance and we're obsessed with the concept that what goes wrong comes around and you put in, you get only what you put in. And we said there, is, there are tenets of sustainability here that have to make this business move forward as a whole. So these three tenets for us are the following. You invest in the community, which includes your, your own team. You protect your environment and you seek economic success so you can continue to, to make this work. And that's really the foundation of our um, of our company and we employ these rules at the origin and then we try to mirror them at the destination and we try to find ways to simplify our value system on a daily basis so that decisions that come to us daily big and small are easy to answer because you have the same filter in everything that you do sure you can just constantly refer back to those three tenets and make sure that you're uh, sticking to them and, and then the business moves forward um, let's talk about tenant number two there a little bit about taking care of the environment. Talk to me a little bit about the unendangered forest program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know, we do a lot of things from an environmental standpoint because we have to. We can't throw away waste in the river. You know, we'd, it's such a fragile environment. We can't burn sugarcane because you'll burn the forest. And of course, we wouldn't do that. But just practically speaking, nobody would do that if they were smart at all. Um, but our idea was that um, we can speak about things and we can do things within our little world. And we are going to be um, a model corporate citizen in this, in this model community. But we really need to get outside of that and we need to influence others too. And over the years, we had noticed that the heritage of aging cachaça in native Brazilian woods was dissipating because of the 300 native species of Brazilian woods, most of them are endangered. And that includes the couple of dozen types of woods that have been historically used to rest or age cachaça. And yet the cachaça industry was not recognizing this. And in part, it's not recognizing this because there's a lack of information. Information in Brazil is really hard to find. There's no consolidated source for whatever. You have to hire people to do the research for you. And the second thing was that they perhaps didn't care. There was economic incentive to continue to put uh, liquids in these indigenous but rare woods because there was a market opportunity for it. And they didn't really care how um, they got to that economic success. And we said, well, we're not doing it, but we need to tell others about not doing it. And then we need to do something to reverse the wrongs. And that is how we got to the unendangered forest. The idea was that um, we wanted to take some of the species that are threatened, they're on the threatened list, that perhaps are utilized in the cachaça industry and see if we can affect a decrease or a reversal of their um, increased threatened uh, role. Because there are six or seven different levels of threatened. And in my time doing this business, I have seen some species move three or four layers in just a few years, which tells you that something that is abundant today could become extinct in 20 years. And that's a scary, scary thought. Wow. There's no time to leave it for the next generation to fix, you know? So uh, we did not know how to do this. <laughs> so we asked a friend, a scientist named Dr. Sylvia Ziller, who is a, who's a reforestation specialist and invasive species specialist who has worked with the Nature Conservancy and many other groups around the world to come and help us figure out how to plant trees on our property. And that was really the mandate at the beginning. Let's plant trees just like everybody else says. And then she came and she taught, taught us that just planting trees is stupid. You need to do it right. And you need to do it in, um, <clears throat> in very considerate ways. You need to consider science. And uh, you could actually be damaging your environment if you're planting the wrong trees or planting them in the wrong way. So we developed a program over the last couple of years that has truly evolved significantly. And it kind of goes like this, guys. We have botanists who go out into the rainforest on weekends. They, they're days off. And they look for 36 species of trees that Sylvia has identified as either threatened or about to become threatened. In some cases, they're endemic, which means that they only grow in our part of the world, which puts them at even higher risk of extinction. And of course, some of them may also be used by the cachaça industry. And we uh, geotag these trees. We have 230 mother trees, as we call them right now, geotagged in our area within 30, 40, 50 mile uh, diameter circle. <clears throat> and then we put those on a schedule. We know when every single one of them is going to flower and thus create seeds. And they go back to these trees at the right time and they collect the seeds. 
And this is because we can't depend on nurseries to get seeds or seedlings or saplings of these trees. They are so rare. We literally have to find the, the mother source in the, in the wild. We take the seeds and take them to our a partner nursery at Ecoa Park, which is a marvelous, marvelous multi-thousand acre ecological park that has built a nursery for us with only natural construction materials, nothing uh, chemical. And we plant these seeds and let them grow there for about three, six, nine months. We usually averaging about six months until they grow into a big tree, maybe about 18 inches, something we call a sapling. And when that sapling feels sturdy enough to be moved to its forever home, we do so. And at the beginning, we're just moving them to our property. And we very quickly learned that you can't just do that. You can, most trees will die. Some of them need shade. So you need to plant primary um, trees to create in six years shade for the secondary growth trees and, and so on. And at some point, we also ran out of space and we decided that we can't put all the trees on our property. So we started to recruit other property owners in our area. And now we have 24 property owners in less than two years, many of them owners of resorts who have a, a preservation mentality just like us, who maybe have set up uh, natural preserves so that they're protected forever. And they're planting trees under the guidance of Sylvia. We have a, a guide. We have a way to instruct these people on how to do it right. And we're now creating a digital tracking mechanism so we can see every one of these plants from the mother tree to the nursery to the forever home. And, uh, and, and monitor its health over the first few years in the forever home as well. So already we've planted thousands of these threatened trees. We have thousands of seedlings at the nursery. We have more property owners lined up. And we have a gigantic uh, uh, natural preserve that stretches over three states because it's a coalition of large landowners willing to expand the project onto, onto this. So we have these big ambitions. We're, we're kind of the headquarters of a project that should be way bigger than us, but we're trying to be the brain that leads with science and discipline so that it can scale up, so they can plant millions of trees, so that it, we can take some of these species off the threatened list. And I think we're very quickly making progress towards that. So this, this project um, was an idea two years ago, and now it has definitely become our legacy, legacy project. And it's the one that defines our brand. And I hope that will make an impact, and I hope that others will learn to do similar things in their own communities. I yeah, mean, I mean, as a hippie, by example, yeah, I, as a huge hippie, I love this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I've always loved this story uh, about the brand, so it's cool to hear it again from from you. Thank you. Yeah. Positive this, spread, Southern. You're right. That's that's really the main concept here. You do the right thing. That's actually the foundation of this business. My wife Emily and I created this business. We were looking for partners who were basically already role models or uh, role models in their communities who were doing um, the right thing for natural resources for their communities and so on. We said, let's amplify those voices. Let's help them become economically successful so that the people around them see that. They can learn that you can do well by doing right. And they can start doing the same thing too because positive spreads. Yeah, positively definitely spreads. <clears throat> Man, uh, you know, Kashasa as a whole, still a fascinating story to be un, to, the, to continue to unfold, especially here in America. Um, your brand in particular with uh, all these initiatives that, that you're taking on to make sure that you're leaving a legacy and doing the right things. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really incredible. It's great to have you on. Um, sadly, we're, we're kind of running out of time here. 
Um, but we'd love to have you back on and talk to you more. I know, I know we were going to talk about the, the fact that your distillery is zero waste and how you reuse uh, and, and upcycle all the waste that you, that you produce to, to, to run the distillery itself. Uh, and, and how you, uh, you know, are also employing sustainable practices on keeping employees and, and keeping people yeah. healthy and, 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 and in good positions. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely try to have you back on again to talk about even deeper into your company. Yeah, carbon but, negative, um, which is yeah. the only negative thing that we actually want to talk about. <laughs> Sometimes um, it pays to be negative, Tim. Yeah, exactly. um, but in the meantime, uh, if people want to see you, get a hold of you, see the brand, get a hold of the brand, where where do they where can we point them for you? Our social media is very easy. We're at Nofogo everywhere, and my email is tree like the plant at nofogo dot com. <laughs> that's <perfect>. that's Novofogo <laughs> N O V O F O G O Novofogo. Um, yeah, you're fired. Yeah, really, really great to, to have you on, uh, Dragos. You're you're out there doing some pretty inspiring work uh, with a with a with a with, with still a, a category that again is, is I don't know. It's, it's certainly it's got to be hard work for you to get that the message out there. But you know, I think the, there's a little bit of mystery behind Kashasa, and I think that's intriguing. So people are probably starting to be a little bit more willing to listen. Um, so really great to have you on. Thank you very much. We'll always have new things to talk about too because. This pursuit of sustainability is never, it's not something that you ever finish. You know, you always have to keep adding, adding new, uh, new initiatives on after the other. So I would love to talk to you guys, Kim. Yeah, great. Well, maybe we just Absolutely. Make you, make you a recurring guest, have you on once a year to give us the update. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Um, listen, fellas, before we go, I want to mention that, uh, you know, world class uh, is happening this year. It didn't get to happen last year um, because, uh, obviously, the global pandemic. But world class is back. Uh, Diageo world class, right? Diageo. Diageo world class, of course, brought to you by the USBG. Um, uh, they are back. Uh, this year they're going to go virtual. Uh, it'll be unlike any bartending competition, competition we've ever seen, I believe. Uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, the best of the best uh, coming together uh, to do virtually – uh, shaking and stirring from coast to coast and uh, the four unique challenges. And they'll be competing for a chance to represent the United States in the global finals, which will be held in Madrid. And I believe that that Madrid will be uh, in person by that time. But, uh, you know, I don't think they've quite released that yet. But the goal is to get uh, to a place where, where the finalists from all over the world can travel. Um, but either way, the virtual broadcast is going to start on this Monday, the 29th of March. Uh, and it features five days of exciting events, uh, trend-led education, amazing panels, and, of course, a fierce competition. You can go and register for that uh, at worldclass2021.eventcore.com uh, or just go follow them on uh, Instagram at worldclassus, uh, and there's links to, to, to register. So you can follow all these amazing events, which are all, by the way, free. Uh, so you can go and check out all of this cool-ass stuff. Yeah, there's you know something cool about world-class is, like, obviously, it's, like, one of the biggest – biggest if not one of the biggest um you know like typically on these world-class runs they're uh they've got people shaking cocktails and airplanes and doing all kinds of crazy shit uh it's pretty cool it's cool that yeah. they're able to do this virtually this year yeah it's gonna be pretty exciting and i think uh you know uh you know as a participant in world-class uh, back when it first came to the united states uh some years ago uh, i i feel like i got a lot out of it um so and, and we had live audience, but they were only local to where we were here in New York City. So I think it's pretty cool that uh, it's going to be virtual. Uh, and so you can be, you know, in the comfort of your own home, shaking and stirring up your own drink and check out the action. So I think they'll have the biggest audience that they've ever had this year because of the right. virtual aspect. 
um, which, uh, you know, only applies pressure and pressure makes competition good, right? That's true. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, that's all I've got for this week, unless you have anything else to add. I just, like, you know, I've had this this wonderful Novo Fogo old-fashioned, and uh, now it's almost 10 o'clock where I live, and I, maybe I'll go get a Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> Treat <laughs> yourself, <laughs> man. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, this has been great. I guess I've been a fan of, of Nova Fogo for a very long time and it's always in my bar and uh, I'm just extremely thankful for all the practices that you're incorporating with the distillery. And, you know, like I said, I'm a a huge hippie. So like these kinds of things really (laughs) like speak to me and uh, we all are a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) So I can't wait to have, we can't wait to have you back on the show uh, at a future date and continue the conversation. With you. Can't wait to see you guys in person too. Absolutely. That obviously <laughs> that's the ultimate goal, right? Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Thank it for the speakeasy this week. Check out Heritage Radio Network for many more programs like this one. Click on the beating heart to donate to the station. Until next time, cheers, everyone. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Enjoy that donut. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.